This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I was not thinking I really wanted to talk about the election tonight. Just because, uh, even though it is topic number one for everybody, I, I, I do think that there is a, a point of getting close to overload. I really do. I really think that we, you get to a point when you start to run in circles and cover all the same territory that has been covered, and heaven knows, between CNN and CBC and CTV and NBC and CBS and ABC and Fox and everybody else, MSNBC and CNBC, on and on and on, and 900CHML and the newspapers and blah, 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 blah. It has, it, could there possibly be something about the election that has not already been broken down, dissembled, analyzed, regurgitated, revisited, argued about, fought about, I can't imagine what it could be. I really can't imagine that any point of the election could possibly still be fresh. So I was going to walk away tonight and I was going to just not do election on the show this evening to give everybody a break. And we still, you know, as I say, we've got Graham Mackay coming up, that's sort of election, but in a very much lighter hearted way. But I do want to tell you, um, I, I changed my mind and I'll tell you why, because I started reading stories about what is happening, not on the streets. We know what's happening on the streets. We know what's happening in different towns. We know there are bad things that are happening to different people. We're hearing reports. I'm talking about in the universities, and this is something we've talked about on this show before. Universities, to me, once upon a time were a place that you went because you were in search of higher levels of knowledge. You wanted to expand your brain. You wanted to expand your experience. You wanted to go somewhere that would challenge your intellect, challenge your assumptions, challenge your beliefs so that they didn't necessarily change your beliefs, but you would go somewhere that you would run into people who had differing opinions from you so that when you would have public discourse, you would start to realize that you actually have to think about why you hold certain views. Because if I'm now having a discussion with someone and they're challenging my view, I can't just say, well, because, well, why do you think that? Well, because that's not an answer. And university was that place. It was the public square of sorts where you would go and you would be challenged and your views would be challenged. And as you thought through your views and as you argued and debated back and forth, and as teachers would challenge what the things that you held precious in your psychology and your beliefs, you would have to think about, well, why do I believe these things? Why do I think the way I do? And one of two things happened. You either changed your views, but understood why your view was changing, or you solidified in your views because you had been forced to think through why you believed it, why you held that view, and as a result, that stabilized and solidified what you were thinking. That's what universities, as I remember them, as I always understood them to be, when I went to one, that's what it was. You were allowed to have differing opinions, and we, not only were you allowed to have differing opinions, you were encouraged to have different opinions. And if someone did have a different opinion, that did not make them evil. That did not make them horrible. That didn't make them even necessarily wrong. It made them someone with a different opinion. Well, clearly times have changed because if you look around now in the last couple days, universities have once again shown themselves to have failed in every conceivable way when it comes to all those things we just talked about. Numerous, and I mean numerous universities around the United States in the last two days have canceled classes, canceled exams, because their students, their, their students were just too upset about Hillary Clinton losing to possibly be able to attend class. It gets worse. At some universities, they now have, I'm not making this up. I swear to you, I'm not making this up. It sounds insanely ridiculous. In addition to canceling classes, in addition to canceling lectures, in addition to canceling exams, 
which you would think, you know, okay, I disagreed with the result of the election. I don't like the result of the election. I don't like Donald Trump, but, you know, whatever. Some universities are now offering counseling, safe rooms with counseling. Some universities have therapy dogs being brought in for students to go and have hands-on cuddling time with a therapy dog to work their way through the traumatizing emotions of losing an election. One university, I can't open the file right now, I can't remember which one it was, actually in the safe rooms has Play-Doh for the students to be able to massage and work their way through, to be able to deal with the horribleness of what happened on Tuesday. That play, We have university students now who are using Play-Doh to try and handle the emotion that has just gotten away from them because they cannot deal with the fact that they lost an election. There are vigils. There are other things going on. And these are not, these are not all just, you know, crazy ridiculous backwoods universities. These aren't, these aren't the little ones that have 47 students. We're talking Cornell, Yale. These are places that have canceled classes and are giving in or at least saying that we think that you are so delicate. You are such a delicate flower that having something go wrong in your life, having something go against you in your life well, we can't possibly expect you to work your way through this and, and persevere and deal with such challenges as something that doesn't go your way. We've got to just shut the whole thing down so you can go and, and, and weep and cry. I'm not making this up. There are, there are universities that are holding, ready for this, cry-ins. You've had sit-ins, you've had hunger strikes. We have cry-ins now that are going on at universities. Now, what I, what, one of the things that strikes me about this, I, I must say, is I don't remember any of this stuff happening. I don't remember any universities canceling classes, honoring the bad or the hard, sad feelings of their students, any of this stuff when Mitt Romney lost to be honest, or John McCain when he lost, or George Bush the senior when he lost, which may say something about the fact that in a lot of cases, universities have become echo chambers and they couldn't possibly understand that there are actually tens of millions of people out in the country who voted for the eventual winner of this. And I'm not talking, it doesn't matter whether you like Donald Trump or don't like Donald Trump. Many of you will think Donald Trump is horrible. I get that. That's fine. That's fine. Donald Trump is a guy that I think we all are very leery and very nervous about. Even those who supported Donald Trump, I think probably would admit that there are parts of Donald Trump, a lot of parts maybe, that they are really unsure and really walking on eggshells about. There are a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump in spite of his Trumpness. But the fact is that an election happened. And people voted and some people won and some people lost, but the people who lost, especially on university campuses have reduced, have been reduced apparently to toddler status that they can't handle that something didn't go their way. What happened to universities as centers of higher education that would help that would just say, come on. Suck it up and deal with the fact that in life, not everything always goes your way. Surely that exists somehow, doesn't it? Surely that's, that's part of the lesson of university. Surely we don't actually send our kids and pay all that money and send them to university to have them treated like kindergarten toddlers that maybe need a nap every afternoon and a warm, safe place with a warm cup of milk to get through the day. I mean, really, is that what we're doing now? Is that what universities are supposed to be for? Let me, um, let me tell you a story. And I pulled this story from an article that John Wells from The Spectator wrote a couple of years ago. So I, I, I wish I knew the answer, but I don't know if the people in the story that I'm going to tell you about are still with us or not. I hope they are, but I have no idea if they are still with us, but it 
essentially is irrelevant to the story. I just wanted to point that out. This, this was written a couple of years ago. It's a story about a guy named Bill Burry or Barry. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. B-U-R-Y, Bill Burry. Bill, uh, Bill, back in World War II, was 19 years old when he was serving with the 1st Hussars Regiment. Is that how you pronounce that? I think Hussars, Hussars, I'm not sure. He was 19. He had to ride five kilometers into Juneau Beach on D-Day on one of the Allies' newest weapons, a floating tank. Of the 18, this is from John's story, of the 18 floating tanks in his unit, only half made it to shore. The rest of the people on the rest of the tanks presumably were killed. When he got to shore, Burry removed his boots and swam to the beach when the tank got as close as it could under enemy fire. He lost many of his friends that day and in the war. And even when he was talking about this, 70 years later, he was choking up while telling the story. Here's another guy, Jim Warford. Another, and by the way, Bill Burry was a Hamilton man. Jim Warford, another Hamilton guy, was 19 as well in 1941 when he enlisted in the Canadian Army's 6th Division Ammunition Company. He landed on Juneau Beach on D-Day plus two, two days after the landings, carrying a landing craft with troops and trucks loaded with ammunition, gasoline, and other supplies, which made it a major target for German defense forces. So as he's trying to get onto the beach, German shells are exploding all around him. He hauled ammunition to the front lines of battle for 36 straight hours and then rode his motorcycle next to trucks and banged on doors to keep the drivers awake as they were driving along. I could go on and on and on. There are so many, there were so many soldiers like these people, like Bill Burry, like Jim Warford. As I said, I hope they are still with us. I have no idea. But in World War II, the average age of the soldiers was in their early 20s. And a lot of them were younger than that. A lot of kids, 16, 17, some as young as 13, I've read, lied about their age to be able to serve their country in warfare, to be able to go to battle and do the honorable thing and with no consideration for their safety, especially those who landed in D-Day, who pulled up on Juneau Beach and Omaha Beach and Dieppe, all these places. They ran up on the beach, many of them being gunned down, knowing that they were running into enemy fire at 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. At Juneau and Normandy and Omaha and all these beaches. And it's appropriate because tomorrow is Remembrance Day. Of course, you know that. And we think when we do this about guys like them of guys who were 17, 18, again, 19, 20 years old, the same ages as the people who now in university can't deal with an election loss without having counseling and a safe room with a therapy puppy. We think back 72 years to these guys who did this to fight for the democracy that the people in university now are so upset didn't go their way. Well, you know what? That's what democracy is. You win some elections, at least your person does. You lose some elections. You don't win every time. Democracy doesn't guarantee you a victory every election. That would be a dictatorship. That's what we don't want to have. And so whether you support Donald Trump or absolutely despise Donald Trump, the reality is that there was an election, which is the very point of what the people who you're going to see at the cenotaphs tomorrow, who are still with us, who are now in wheelchairs and with canes and with walkers and gray hair and getting elderly, that's exactly what they fought for, for the chance, for the right to have an election. And if you are so delicate that you can't even handle the fact that your person lost, whoever that was, whether it was in, you know, I'm sure the same people in Canada who like Donald Trump liked Stephen Harper. Well, you know what? Several, a year ago, they lost and Justin Trudeau won. And I'm sure those people weren't thrilled when Justin Trudeau won. 
you get over it. And tomorrow is Remembrance Day, as I say. And we, these days, are responding to something vastly less than storming the beaches of a place under German fire by shutting down university classes. The same age people have, in 70 years, gone from that, gone from being heroes who stormed the beaches to being people who need Play-Doh to deal with their sadness. What has happened to us? What has happened to us? It is pathetic. It is true when you put them side by side. And Remembrance Day crystallizes that. It does that. When you put teenagers, 20-year-olds, side by side from 1944 and 2016, it is pathetic. Ask the roughly 44,000 Canadians who died in World War II if things always went the way they wanted. Or the... 40 or 450,000 British or 420,000 Americans plus plus all the other ones who were wounded or came home traumatized it's just remarkable that 70 some years later we are talking about people the same age who can't handle that something didn't go their way i understand that an election is a big deal i'm not poo-pooing the idea that it's an election i understand that these things affect our society i understand all those things But ask the people at the Cenotaph tomorrow if things always went their way when they were out there fighting and they were losing friends and they were having people beside them be killed. I just, it's, it's so disappointing in a lot of ways. And it's, it's perfect though. It's perfect. The timing of it is perfect that we are seeing this at the same week as Remembrance Day when people who we honor because of their work, when things were going completely the wrong way, when things were going completely against the way they wanted it, they persevered, they stuck with it, they worked through it, and they may not have liked it. I'm sure they didn't like it a lot of the time. You ask any veteran, hey, how was the war? Many of them are going to be saying, or all of them I would suspect, yeah, you know, it wasn't a lot of fun. And yet they stuck with it and they didn't go, I think today I'm going to take the day off because I need to be able to sit with a therapy puppy in Dieppe and, uh, or, or Juno Beach to, to get over the trauma of what just happened. What they went through was a million times worse. Come on. Surely we haven't reached the point in our society where we are so soft and so unable to function unless everything goes our way that we just become frozen. And if we are... Go to the Cenotaph tomorrow, ask one one or two of these guys, and then compare it with how difficult your lot in life is and say, really, okay, can I get over this? Can I move along? We can still affect change. I can still work politically. I can still do the things. I can still speak out against it, but I don't think I need to really shut down my entire life because I'm paralyzed by this decision just because something didn't go my way. Sorry for the rant, but I got to tell you, when I see those guys, those and women, but especially the men, because they were the ones who were storming the beaches, when I see them, and there's only a few of them left, it really, really, when you put it next to what's going on today, crystallizes how tough, how hard, how brave they were, and how much work we still have to do. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. My next guest is going to be presenting a bid to the Canadian Hockey League. That is the governing body, the overwhelming, overarching umbrella of junior hockey in this country. Ontario Hockey League, Western Hockey League, Quebec Major Junior, I'll fall under that. He will be presenting a bid to the Canadian Hockey League to bring the 2018 Memorial Cup to Hamilton. That is the championship of Major Junior Hockey. And it is, for those who are saying, well, Major Junior, I don't know, it's a big deal. It is a big, big deal. Last time it was here, it drew a record for a Memorial Cup for the championship game that still stands. In fact, and I was blown away by this number. That was in 1990. Hamilton, Hamilton's team at that time was the Dukes of Hamilton. They were so horrible that even though they get an automatic entry into the tournament as the host, they withdrew because they were just a disaster. So there was no host team in that tournament, which is usually what you would get to sell tickets. Even without a host team, the championship game set a record for the Memorial Cup and put more people into the building for that game than were in the building in 1987 for the Gretzky to Lemieux Canada Cup game, which 
kind of blows you away when you think about it because that is one of the most famous games in hockey history. Well, the guy who will be making this presentation and trying, or at least one of the people who will be making the presentation trying to bring the Memorial Cup to Hamilton is Steve Steos, president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs, who joins me now. Steve, how are you? I'm great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Hey, where were you in 1990 when the Memorial Cup was being played at then Cops Coliseum? I was in the building, second row from the top. Really? Uh, behind the non-goal scoring. So I was as far away, probably almost <laughs> I was a roll away from being as far away from the where the goal was scored, where Armstrong put the puck in from uh, a bit of a bouncer from the uh, from the blue line, from what I can remember. Did you buy tickets, or did you, just, did you somehow latch into some along the way? No, I bought them. Yeah, we bought them. My, my dad, dad and I were, were stuck up there, but it was a, it was terrific. Yeah, it was a it was a perfect storm. I, I was listening to your intro here, and a couple of things that, that uh, you said. One thing is the Dukes, I think you said they removed themselves from the tournament, but I think that they probably had more people around them uh, asking them to do that. Uh, yeah, I know, think they was, may have been invited to do that. Ultimately, they chose, but yeah, they were uh, they were awful. Yeah, yeah. And that Memorial Cup was a, was a perfect storm. I mean, with Eric Lindros, yes, uh, really being a, the star of uh, of the CHL at that time, and Kitchener Rangers, a real popular team in our league. Um, it certainly was a great, great event, great game. You never played in one, though, did you? I did not. No, lost in the M's Division Finals. We lost to, the, to Sault Ste. Marie and, in two of my uh, years, and then against uh, Chris Pronger's Peterborough Pete's in my last year. But I don't really remember. <laughs> <laughs> but but okay, so you played. I, like lo- I just don't like losing. <laughs> <laughs> you played in a Stanley Cup final. You played for Canada in the World Cup of Hockey. So if you were to get the the Memorial Cup here and be the general manager of a team in it, would you count that on your resume as having participated? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, we. It's. Uh, I feel very comfortable with with where our group is right now, and uh, we're trending in the right direction. Um, so there won't be, I can assure you that there won't be any Dukes of Hamilton type of uh, situation uh, with our group. We're very confident about that with our group. As far as being a, a host team, um, you know, and getting into the Memorial Cup, there's still something to be said about that. But, uh, you know, we, we're comfortable thinking that we'll be a contending team in 17-18 regardless of uh, where the Memorial Cup's hosted. Okay, I am now uh, Joe Hamilton who doesn't really follow hockey and isn't really sure about this whole Memorial Cup thing. Why do we want the Memorial Cup here? What would be the th- what would it do? What would it what would it, why would it be good for the city of Hamilton? Well, junior hockey. I mean, the, the history of junior hockey is a little bit uh, you know things have been uneasy in Hamilton, and uh, that, that's a great challenge for me. And one of the reasons why I came back to take on this challenge is to, to make the team sustainable. I believe that we have tr- a tremendous uh, hockey fan base in Hamilton. And, uh, you know, we're, we're working towards building, fundamentally building a very strong franchise, bringing all the right people in. We've got a terrific owner in Michael Ann Lauer who allows me to bring in all the, uh, the right people to, to build this team and this franchise the right way. And, uh, you know, from a community aspect, we've knocked it out of the park. Our, our players are totally engaged uh, with what my vision is and some of our core values. And I want to see this sustainable. I want the young kids in Hamilton young players now playing uh, to be inspired by our team. And uh, I want it to grow. And I want, to, I want to inspire the young generation. And I want them to be Hamilton Bulldogs as well, the local kids. And I was inspired when the Steelhawks were here. Now, they weren't here for very long. But certainly, that, that's, that's what I want to do. So as far as the, the, the average fan in Hamilton, why we want to do it, it's the 100th anniversary of the Memorial Cup. And with our connection with the military in Hamilton, I think that, that, that just lends a, into what uh, would be a great event for our city. Um, and I think that uh, maybe an eye-opener for the average fan to what junior hockey really is all about. We're always trying to get uh, uh, people in the building at First Ontario Centre. Uh, you know, there are some challenges. There's no doubt we have uh, a very large building uh, one that one, one that's 30 years old as well, and uh, you know, so there are some challenges to that. Uh, at the same time, we continue to do our business and uh, and try and build the right fr- franchise, and, and fundamentally, with our core values of community first, uh, have a junior franchise in Hamilton uh, forever. You talk about the challenges that Hamilton has had over the years with junior hockey. You talk about the big building, which is a challenge. And then you also, on the flip side, talk about how successful the Memorial Cup here was back in 1990. Do you look at this now and 
Could Hamilton pull this off? If this if this event came here, are you confident that Hamilton would be able to pull this off well? I I do. I think what we what we're doing is we're we're going through the process like every other team. We consist, consistently evaluate where we are uh, from a business perspective, from a team perspective, and there's there's certain steps that we'll have to take as we move closer to this bid. Uh, as of right now, we're we're, we're moving to that direction, but we're, there's questions every day that we ask ourselves. Uh, to make sure that uh, if we do this and when we do or when we do this, that we're totally prepared and it's the it's it's the it's the best ever again. And uh, we we matched uh, what we did in 1990. Uh, in saying that, that's uh, having an owner like Michael Landlauer and being as fortunate as we are to work for him, uh, we have to be best in class. If we're going to do this. It's going to be great, or else uh, you know he won't want to do it. But at the same time, so that, these are the steps that we take and make sure that we're completely prepared uh, as we move forward. The other two teams that we know of, anyway, and the CHL doesn't, I understand, announce this, so it's just from what we've been able to glean, but is Regina and Saskatchewan with the Pats and with Oshawa. They're the other two teams that are in competition. What are Hamilton's advantages? When you go and make the pitch, what are you going to be pointing out that Hamilton... I, you don't have to make that. You don't have to put Oshawa or Regina down. But what do we have as an advantage here that would make us an attractive place for this? Well, I think our location. I think if you look at uh, uh, just where we are in proximity to other junior organizations and uh, the fan bases in and around this area, and how uh, how easy it would be for for uh, uh, you know the fans of the Ontario Hockey League and. Uh, home fans of Kitchener, Guelph, even London, Niagara, Mississauga. I mean, we have a, um, a great group of teams that are in our area. So there is a, a great uh, capacity to draw people in uh, that are Ontario Hockey League fans. That's one thing. Our building, as we talked about, is a big building and has some challenges. And You know, it's an older building. Um, does that lend to, uh, you know, maybe giving us an advantage to the other teams that have less capacity, seating capacity? That'll be up to the CHL. I mean, they'll they'll look at every single uh, bit of the bid and uh, and make their decision from there. So those are some of the things that we're looking at. You you mentioned all those teams. There are six OHL teams within a ninety minute drive. Does this then become a Hamilton bid or a regional bid almost? That you would say, listen, we we're going to draw those London fans and those Guelph fans and those Kitchener fans to come here. Well, certainly it would be a proud Hamilton bid, is what it would it would be, and be uh, something that we want to be proud of uh, to be able to host this and uh, have the community support uh it would be a hamilton bid with with the advantage of having uh some of those local or not local teams but teams within our area that would be able to draw it and enjoy the tournament you'd be praying that one of those teams would be the ontario qualifier i'm guessing though <laughs> uh it would be helpful for sure. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> you know i mean 1990 was terrific but again it was uh it really everything everything really fell into place. That Kitchener team was a very very good team, uh, and then the star power of uh, of Eric Lindros uh, in the build up to that. So certainly, I mean, you always you know I was in Red Deer and uh, watched the Memorial Cup this year. And there's you know uh, when when the Ontario team is playing the or the Quebec team in the, in the Western uh, you know in the Western uh, in, in Red Deer out in the West, you don't have nearly as as much enthusiasm for those games, but uh, you know that's part of the that's part of the whole setup for the Memorial Cup. But you put two local teams or two area teams into it, and suddenly there are many fewer games that you would expect a lower crowd, and probably draw a rivalry for a very long time. Yeah, those two true teams. enough. Yeah, there is a uh, an, a game. I was going to say an exhibition game. It's not really an exhibition game, but there's a Canada Russia game, an Ontario Hockey League All Star versus Russia game Monday down at First Ontario Centre, and I'm wondering if you look at that as any kind of test run. It, it, like, Do you think that the Ontario Hockey League, the Canadian Hockey League, is going to look at the attendance and the game day presentation and all those other things and grade you guys on that when it comes to making the bid? I'm sure they, I'm sure they will. I think that, that would be a factor for sure. Um, you know, We're looking to uh, put on a great event. It's a CHL event, but certainly we, we have our our tasks in, in selling the game and getting people into the building. And uh, uh, it'll be a bit of a test run, I'm sure, from the CHL's perspective and the Ontario Hockey League's perspective, but for ours as well, for, for our assessment of how we're moving forward and where we are as an organization at this time, uh, certainly. I mean, we again, like it's every day, Scott, that I go in, you look at, you ask 
questions and you ask how we can be better and where can we improve. Um, and this one on Monday will be, um, you know, a great game. You, you know, you said exhibition game to start. Correct yourself. Not an exhibition game for these players. Certainly. No. It's, it's such a, it's a, it's, it's such an, it's an intense, it's an intense game. I've, I've, uh, I've been to a number of these and these guys are vying for a chance to play in the world junior championship. And, and it's such a big deal to us here in Canada. And I think, uh, most hockey families, what they do during the holidays is turn on the world, world juniors. So, um, these players are, it's going to be a terrific game, a great event. So, and we're doing our best to get people into the building and let them know that it is a world junior preview. Uh, we're fortunate to have William Bitten who's playing in the game tonight, uh, in North Bay playing Monday, uh, for Team OHL against the Russians in our own building. So very proud of that. So excited to see where we are, excited to see the game, uh, and hopeful that, uh, William continues to play that he has been for us and has a good showing so he can uh, show Hockey Canada what uh, what type of player he is. Uh, you don't have to say it, but I'm a little puzzled that when they started filling roster spots with uh, draft-eligible players that another d- Bulldog draft-eligible player wasn't added. But I won't make you say that. That's just, you know, my comment on it. There were a few guys that could have been included there and, you know, might have helped with the whole thing. But anyway, again, I won't make yeah, you say we, that. Yeah, the only comment the only comment I'll say to that is uh, it's, a, it's a difficult task for sure. Hockey Canada to put these rosters together. Certainly, we feel we think a lot of our players and uh, all of them, but uh, the, the draft eligible players are continuing to improve. And uh, you know, with the Matthew Strongs, Mackenzie Animal Whistles, uh, Marion Studenick, and uh, and Caden Fulcher as well. I mean, certainly we have a lot of young prospects. I know Marion's not qualified to play in this game for us, being a Slovakian, but so we're very proud of our young core group and the leadership that we have in our group and the team continues to play well and, uh, and, and, and progressing. Just before I let you go, one of the things that, that struck me, cause I couldn't remember where the world juniors would be just a few weeks or I guess a few months before you would host this in 2018. So the, the world juniors, the fall, the Christmas of 2016 into 17 or sorry, 17 into 18. And that's in Buffalo. Would it help? Or would it hurt to have junior hockey that much and that intense of a junior hockey tournament that close shortly before your event? Um, it, hard to say. I would I would say no, but I think that's pretty hard to uh, to, to figure out at this stuff. The more junior hockey, the more that our fans can see uh, what how exciting junior hockey is, and the more, the more that they can see some of our prospects that are going to uh, play in Hamilton and move on to the National Hockey League. It takes time. It takes time for us to. Uh, build that foundation and uh, with the fan base that we have to continue to build on that. I think the more that they see junior hockey and how exciting it is, completely different from the American Hockey League. And if you ask any one of our fans that have been there for a game or two or our season, our loyal season ticket holders, uh, they would they would tend to agree. When um, When is the presentation? When do you actually go in front of the CHL and make your first three? I mean, I know there's a number of steps, but when's the next presentation you have to make? Uh, this coming Thursday will be the next step uh, in the process, and the, the presentation won't be until December. Uh, but certainly, again, we evaluate each step as we as we move along. But uh, uh, this coming Thursday will be, or next Thursday will be, uh, the next step in the process. We eagerly await finding out what happens with it because it is a huge event. If it were to land here, Steve Steos, appreciate the time as always. Thanks. Thanks for ha- thanks, Scott. Always a pleasure. Um, yeah, you know what? It is a it is a big deal, and even if you don't love junior hockey, and that's okay, that, that's fine. I mean, you know what? We try to get lots of uh, events in this city, even if you don't go to all of them. But if, and there's some ifs, but if Hamilton was to get this, and this time the Bulldogs would actually be in the tournament because they are actually an improving team. They're going to be a much better team even by next year. They'll be a championship contender by next year, which would align with going into the Memorial Cup. Then that's actually a factor in whether or not you get it. The league makes sure you've got a competitive team, thanks to the Dukes of Hamilton screwing it up the first time. But if you got the Bulldogs in there, and if one of those six other teams that's within a 90-minute drive, London, Kitchener, Guelph, um, Barry, Niagara, um, Mississauga, if one of them could somehow pull it together and also get in, especially if it was London or Kitchener or Niagara or maybe Guelph, you suddenly have something here that you could, you could really, I think, make it work. But you don't know. You never know who's going to win. Worst case scenario, you draw, you get Sault Ste. Marie or Sudbury that wins and nobody comes. But 
You don't know until you get it, and you, you don't get it unless you try. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. My next guest is probably one person that you could safely say, at least from a professional standpoint, is giddy at the fact that Donald Trump won the election. I'm guessing, and he'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that Donald Trump winning the U.S. election might have been just the thing that Graham McKay, the editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator, saw, and it just made his day on Tuesday night. Again, professionally. Graham, am I correct? You are correct. I thought I might be. Yes, Graham, thanks for joining us. This is Graham McKay, the, by the way, I will say it again, the best editorial cartoonist in Canada. And if you don't believe me, go look around at some of the other editorial cartoonists and you will realize what we have here in Hamilton. Anyway, Graham, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, I'm blushing. You always make me blush, Scott. Well, you know, I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. (laughs) Hey, when you, though, getting back to Donald Trump in a second, when you were watching the returns, when you're watching the election coverage, and again, I understand, I want people to understand, we're talking professionally here. I don't know what your, who your rooting interest was for in the election. I won't ask you. But as you're watching the returns, professionally, are you looking at this going, oh, man, this, this could be really good if Donald Trump wins? Uh, absolutely. I think in any sort of election scenario, it always comes up. You want to have the most cartoonable person to draw. And obviously, none of us were expecting that. And, well, not many of us anyway up here. Uh, so, yeah, we've got Mr. Orange over Hillary Clinton, and I think a lot of us have drawn Hillary to death over the past few years, at least the veterans. And here we have this, this guy, this new guy on the scene who's like a new Rob Ford, and uh, <laughs> he's, he's gold to us, literally. Before, okay, before we get to all about him, who is, out of anybody in the world, who is the greatest politician to draw as a cartoonist? Uh there's so many of them. Um, I suppose if you want to go into history, it'd be Richard Nixon, but I really was just a, s- a small child when he was around. <laughs> um, we were pretty lucky up here with, with Jean Chrétien. I, I thought he was a, a good guy to draw. Um, but you know what? I, I, I'll take anyone. Who would and, it be uh, now? Who would it be right now of your favorite living, active politicians? Who's the best one? Who's your favorite I, to draw? I like drawing, I like drawing Kathleen Wynne. <laughs> and, and somehow when you draw her and I hope this is not taken as an insult she always has that Orville Redenbacher kind of look to her <laughs> yes, she does. yes so we you know and if you grow up on Orville Redenbacher you know that, that face from the, from the containers and yeah sure she looks exactly like him and I think she knows it I think she, it's actually been she, she'll admit she looks like over a Redenbacher and yeah at least she's got a good sense of humor about it. So when, as a, as a cartoonist, when you sit, when you start to think about, um, who is going to be good to draw and who isn't, is it all about the person's appearance or does their personality have as much of a factor or, or really is it just, if they look funny, they look funny. Well, you know, you can, you can look very funny, but not be a very entertaining person. You could be a very humorless person and not have any charisma at all. Um, you know, I, I I hate to disparage our current mayor, but I haven't drawn a cartoon of him for uh, maybe months. Well, I have a few times, but certainly not to the amount of times, the number of times that I did our last mayor. You know, he had a he had a character that that lent itself to a cartoon all the time. But you know, our our, our current mayor takes a very cautious approach in, on things, and he. He just doesn't get a lot of print, unfortunately. And then along comes a guy like Donald Trump. You compare him to the last guy, and I bet you anything I'll be doing a lot more American cartoons in the next four years <laughs> than I have for the last four years. Okay, had Hillary Clinton won, walk us through the, the technical side of what you do as a cartoonist. Had Hillary Clinton won this election and you were drawing Hillary Clinton all the time for the next four years, what is the main or the defining characteristic of a Hillary Clinton cartoon? As you're caricaturing her, what is the thing that you start with? What's the main focus of a Hillary Clinton? Well, you know, Google Google Images is very important because she she's known to change her hairstyle all the time. So, you know, you, she's had so many different hairstyles. So that's that's something that you, you, you have to uh, Be investigate current. before you... Yeah, uh, I mean, you have to look into her... I always start with the nose, and then I, I go in like a like a circular sort of pattern from there after I get the hair. At least know where it lands on the face and that sort of thing. 
I mean, hair is very important. I mean, that's that's, that's the key thing about the, the president-elect is that he's got that that hair. <laughs> I mean, no one else has hair like that, and and he's had that hairdo for for decades, and he'll probably have that same hair after four years. Okay, so we, so Hillary would have been uh, what you just read. What if it had been Bernie Sanders? I guess we're going back to hair. If Bernie Sanders had somehow come out on top in this, <laughs> yeah, Larry David, you know, he's got the hair. So. <laughs> Be, be that he just sort of tufts of hair on the side of his head you know he's got a big forehead and you know you just put a, a few wisps of hair on top but um you know, you know hillary and, and donald had really good hairstyles to draw and it's not that far off of prime ministers he's, he's got a great head of hair as well so hair is very defining in in a, in a caricature for sure and uh, I think we've got, we've hit the gold line. Well, and, and I have to believe, you know, one of the things that I notice, and tell me if I'm wrong about this because you're the guy doing it, but one of the things I notice about editorial cartoons is the longer someone gets drawn, the more exaggerated the main f- part of their person is. And I have yeah. to believe that by the time we get to year four of Donald Trump, he will literally almost just be hair. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you look at some of the American cartoonists and how they drawn Obama over the past eight years. I mean, he has just morphed into this... It, it, it's really fascinating how you can you can go back in your own personal archives and see how uh, a, a, a caricature just changes over time, and it just, it's an evolution that, that really fascinates me as a cartoonist, and I don't even know that I'm doing it, but if I... I mean, I, I know I've, I've drawn... I have a drawing of, of Donald Trump when I was in university back in 1989, and I can I can refer to to that. And 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 he was a young man then, uh, but his hair was pretty much the same as what we have now. But it's it's very funny and, and interesting to watch how you can how how, how the character changes. And you know, Don, uh, uh, it, with 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 George Bush in particular, his ears tend to get bigger and. And with uh, Brian Mulroney, his chin got bigger. So it's uh, well, and with Obama, happen. with Obama, it seemed the ears got bigger in a lot of cartoons. That became the thing that became exaggerated. Yeah, yeah. Any, and, and of course, the hair got grayer, and and he got skinnier and skinnier for some reason. <laughs> some of the cartoonists, like he just for for a guy like Michael Ramirez, if you ever look at his stuff, he's just like a he's like a stick drawing now. <laughs> it's incredible how, how how it evolves that way. When you start, when someone lands on the stage and you begin to draw editorial cartoons of these people, is it very difficult at first? Does it take a long time at the beginning to figure out what it is you're drawing and then does it become easier or is it always changing? Is it, is it the same length of time it takes to do it no matter how long they've been in office? Yeah, I, it's hard to say, you know, it, it just sort of, I think I think you also look at how your peers are are drawing uh, the particular politician, and you just say, "Hey, that guy just nailed his you know his nose, and he got he just got his eyebrows right or her hairstyle right." And and you, I think that is a big influencing factor. I mean, you know, you can you can approach it as like a as a Wonderland caricature if you pick out all the details, but there's there's certain things that you you really it takes time to to figure out what's what's the there's a glint in that guy's eye that you gotta get that and it will take several cartoons in order to, to get it I was gonna say like do you do you ever feel like with you that you nail it on the first try or is it usually two no. or three or four <laughs> no it's it's I, I I can look back at some of my cartoons and just yeah you know, <laughs> it takes it takes a, a, it almost takes a few years um, before you get it I mean I don't think I've I've, I don't think I've mastered Fred Eisenberger, and he's been around for what a decade and a half, anyway. Uh, I'm I'm guessing, based on your interpretation of Fred Eisenberger, that he would be just as well if you never drew him again. <laughs> <laughs> Fred, Fred is actually I've, I've met him, I've, I've talked to him, and I, I've studied his face. You know, when he comes to head board meetings, and he's um, he's got a good a good caricature about him. He really does. Um, know to draw him but you know he's he just the personality though is just there's always something lacking and the other thing that complicates matters is that fred eisenberg is, is, is growing a beard now and then and, and that just makes matters even more difficult for me you know sometimes when i think about what you're doing i almost compare you in a sense and, and you and your colleagues to 
impressionists, people like you know Dana Carvey or for an older mm-hmm. generation, Rich Little or something, who have to find the mm-hmm. the nugget of the impression and then really exaggerate it to make it stand out, so people go, "Oh, yeah, that's 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 it." I get that. that except yeah. you're not doing it with voice; you're obviously doing it visually. Yeah. Oh, I mean, look at Alec Baldwin. I mean, right from the beginning, he he really has Donald Trump right down to a. It's almost like he's like a, a body double, um, and 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 in some ways, I'm sure the secret. I'm sure Donald Trump will be asking for him to be used as one. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to see that. You know, By presidential order, you'll be the one to get in the way of a bullet. Exactly, but then you you look way back in Saturday Night Live, and and Gerald Ford was played by Dan Aykroyd, and at the time Dan Aykroyd had a was was a young man, and he had a he had a mustache, but for whatever reason. <laughs> He was the guy that, that played Gerald Ford, and he didn't look anything like him, but I guess he had the, some of his lines right, and, and, it, and it was convincing enough to viewers out there that that, that was the president at the time. So. But you are hoping, I'm guessing, and again, uh, let me reiterate one more time in case someone has joined us. We're talking from a professional standpoint. I'm not asking, Graham's not giving away his per- personal political views on this, but you must be hoping for absolutely outrageous behavior for the next four years, because that would just be gold. I think we're expecting outrageous behavior, but uh, so far since he was elected, he's been kind of boring. You know, he met with he met with Obama. He didn't say anything nasty. It was all. It was actually. I mean, some people are going to blanch when I say this, but it kind of was presidential today in a weird kind of way. Well, he was. Remember when he met the president of Mexico? Yes. He, he was actually like, "Where? What? What happened to you? You're like uh, lobotomized here. You're not saying anything." So I, I, I'm, I think we're getting the hints that, you know, perhaps the weight and the prestige of the presidency is has done something to this billionaire, and. You know, he might have had to be a bit outspoken, like crazy outspoken, <laughs> getting to get to this job. But now that he's got this job, who knows? It might, it might, he'll, he'll, he might keep this, you know, uh, persona of, of calm and, and assurance and everything. But it might, you know, we just know that he's got a bit of an explosive a bit. character about him. A bit. <laughs> you. <laughs> You drew one today uh, that will be in the paper tomorrow, and I will I will say it's hilarious. It's a brilliant piece, and it's a Donald Trump cartoon, and it's about meeting Obama, and people should go look it up in the paper tomorrow or online or on Twitter or Facebook or wherever else they want to find it. Um, when Even when you have a great character then, like Donald Trump, that you can draw and make brilliant cartoons and brilliant technical artistic cartoons, where do you get the ideas from? That's whatever I, I said you were going to come on. I've had three emails from people saying, ask him how he comes up with his ideas. Where, where does the joke come from? Where does the nugget of the humor come from? Even if you can draw the guy. I don't know. You know, every day I come into work and my wife will tell you this, that I don't have a clue what I'm going to draw <laughs> from the day that I, I leave the house. And then I get to the office and I, I really, and I think this is the case for any editorial cartoonist. They, they hem and they haul, and they, they're trying to look for a subject that's going to be topical for the next day, and that, you know, you just hope that it's not going to be overtaken by events mid-afternoon, and, you know, you just you, you, you just sit down, you look at your blank piece of paper, usually it helps if I have lunch or something to <laughs> chew on something, and, and, <laughs> and, and then magic happens, I don't know, you just start putting the pencil to the paper, and you're saying, okay, well, we're going to work with this subject, and I guess this is the focal guy who's involved with this. And my cartoons always have to have something funny. I think that's that's a, a key element for any editorial cartoon. You've got to have something visually uh, stimulating for to, to to grab the the viewer, or the reader off the editorial page. It's a very boring couple of pages, right? It's just all gray, and, and you you need to draw the attention. And I, that's the number one thing for me. You've got to find something funny and then uh, go from there. And, you know, some are hits and some are misses. And, but I've never missed, I've never missed a day, so. Well, and some of the hits, funny. some of the hits, I'm guessing, are misses with the subject of the cartoon. I'm sure over the years you've had one or two people who have been parodied and skewered in your cartoons who have let you know they have not appreciated the barb. Well, they don't tell me, they tell my boss. <laughs> <laughs> 
kind of laughs and then he says, "Okay, relax." Especially if it's a local. That's what I mean. I'm, not, I'm guessing Donald Trump is not calling you or your boss to no. complain, but someone local might. Exactly. We've got. We've had a few mayors, actually, in the past. Well, one in particular, and a while ago, who, who was not very happy with, with my cartoons. And, you know, my, and then my boss had to tell me, you know, ease up on that guy, because I think he's going to jump off the, 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 the roof of City Hall if he keep this up. So. Oh, well, yeah. the downside of all this, Graham, I suppose, is, as, as exciting pro- professionally and, and rich professionally as this might be, uh, I don't know that there is any higher to climb on the cartoonist mountain than the top of Mount Trump. I think after you've gotten to here, I, I don't know there could be anything greater than having Donald Trump for four years to draw. Well, well, you know, many comparisons are made with Rob Ford and... Um and look what we've got now in uh, Toronto. We've got the steady hand of John Tory, but it's a very boring steady hand. And I know, I know the, the cartoonist of the Toronto Star, you know, Rob Ford, he owned Rob Ford for those four years, and now it's like we got boring John Tory, who, who's, you know, it, it's, it's going to be very difficult to top Donald Trump in, in the years ahead, but we really do have a gold mine here and you know you know our newspaper industry is is hurting now but you know and a lot of my friends in the u.s who are cartoonists down at papers down there whose jobs are in jeopardy you know there's a lot of them are you know on the left and they're kind of lamenting you know that trump is the new president but they're you know they need to it didn't take long for them to realize well their job is going to be that much mightier because they've got this potential time bomb in the White House who they can lampoon on a daily basis. It's a, it's a good thing for, for satirists, that's for sure. Be sure to uh, check Graham's stuff. Uh, he's in the paper every day. He's at thespec.com every day. He posts his stuff on Twitter every day. He is at, usually posted on Facebook every day. And you have a website, right? Yes, I do. www.makaicartoons.net M-A-C-K-A-Y cartoons.net. There you can find his stuff as well. Graham, uh, always appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time tonight. Pleasure, Scott. Thanks very much. That is, um, that is Graham McKay, and he does have a very, very funny one uh, in the paper tomorrow about the meeting today between Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Uh, go check it out. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.